Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it and many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around it, all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Not long ago, Queen Elizabeth II celebrated what has been called her Diamond Jubilee. Sixty years ruling the British Empire and ruling the British Commonwealth. And if you got to see any part of it, it, there were parades and there were military demonstrations. There was a particular scene on the house at the top of the uh, at the at the Queen's house, there was a, an 80s rock band playing on top of the house singing our house in the middle of the street, our house. And, it, you know, you see these normally pretty laid back British people just rocking and rolling. And a commentator said the British do pomp and pageantry like no other. In ancient as well as modern times, when a ruler or a king was installed in office, it was attended with parades and displays of wealth and military might. And even with all this showy extravagance, there is this sense that there's something missing. There's something empty. There's something temporal. There's something transitory about the kingdoms of human beings. And in chapter 11, we see the power of Jesus. We see his purpose in coming to Jerusalem. His coming becomes a, a fulfillment of prophecy. It's also a time of judgment, but it's also a time of hope. It's Palm Sunday. And Jesus has less than one week to live. And for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, and for those of you who have been following along in the Gospel of Mark, 38% of Mark's Gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. As a matter of fact, 20% verses 14 and 15 
are devoted to one day, the day of the death of Jesus. And so the chapter begins with a celebration in verses 1 through 11. It continues with cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 19. And then Jesus will pronounce judgment, a curse on a fig tree in verses 12 through 14 and in verses 20 through 26. And then the chapter is going to come to an end with a climactic, dramatic confrontation, a conflict with the religious leaders in verses 27 through 33. Since the beginning of the church, this last week, has been known as Holy Week. Bible teachers call this section the triumphal entry. But I don't like that so much. Because I don't really think it is a triumphal entry. It's a modest entry. It's a sacrificial entry. It's a prophetic entry. It's a peaceful entry. The the Romans who would have been reading Mark's gospel, they knew what a triumph looked like. When a general or a king or an emperor would come into Rome, it was because he has defeated at least 5,000 of their enemies. There would be captives and there would be trophies and there would be prizes as he drags the captives through the streets of Rome. And so most Roman citizens would have laughed at, at this entry. The coming of Jesus is full of symbolism and prophetic fulfillment. But the real triumphal entry, it takes place in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And before we finish our study, we will be reading that particular passage of Scripture. You see, Jesus isn't like the kings of the earth. He's a servant king. He is humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. He is a king of peace. He will be despised and rejected by the people. He is a burden bearer, riding on a donkey, which is the ultimate symbol of burden bearing for the poor. So the king of peace comes in peace and for Peace. The king and lord of the universe will be accepted when he comes again. Not when he's riding on a donkey. But when he rides on a white horse whose origin isn't anywhere on the planet earth, he will come to heaven with, from, from heaven to the earth with angels. On this day, though, what Jesus does, he does knowingly. He does thoughtfully. He does carefully and prophetically. He knows what he's doing. He's come to fulfill scripture. He's come to glorify his father. He's come to redeem human beings. Jesus isn't taken in by the roaring crowds or even the seeming faithful cheers of Hosanna. This becomes apparent when we read Luke's gospel in chapter 19, verses 38 through 44. As Jesus comes, he comes into the city and he begins to weep over the city. Jerusalem is like a barren fig tree, unable to bring forth fruit. And as Jesus weeps over the city, you'll remember that he says, how many times I would have gathered you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. 
We also know that this is a necessary fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9, even though Mark doesn't bring it up. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is the servant king. He's the burden bearer of a lost and a desperate world. And that's why he's rightfully called the king who brings salvation. And remember what salvation means. It means to rescue. And in this case, of course, it means to rescue from sin. But it means way more than that. It means to rescue from everything that violates, antagonizes, and otherwise separates you from God. Jesus has deliberately planned this event to fulfill scripture. And look again in verse 1. It says, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. For those of you who have been following along in chapter 1, 2, all the way through 10, Jesus has made at least 35 different stops along the way in his ministry. In the last section, Jesus began the trip from Jericho to Jerusalem. And remember, he's made his way 16 miles through the winding path and he comes to the top of the mountain. And everyone coming to Jerusalem, no matter which direction you're coming from, Jerusalem is up. It's some 2,800 feet above sea level. And that doesn't sound very impressive when you're in Colorado. But guess what? When the lowest place on the planet Earth is in the Dead Sea, all of a sudden it becomes fairly impressive to go to the top of Jerusalem. Both Bethany and Bethphage were villages on the outskirts of the town. And we know from the early writings of the rabbis that Bethany was within the, the, the allotted distance that you could walk on a Sabbath day. We don't know the exact location of Bethphage. Bethany means the house of dates. Bethphage probably means the house of the unripe figs. Jesus is paused on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives because this would be the place where most of the pilgrims would stay. And it's hard for you to imagine, but let me help you set the stage. For those of you who have ever been to downtown Littleton, on Littleton Boulevard, there's a little tiny village over there. It was part of the depot. There's a reason why it was called Littleton. It was just this little train stop as you're leaving a great big town, Denver. But I want you to imagine that from the north and from the south and from the east and the west, two million people converge on downtown Littleton. What would it look like? What would it feel like? You can imagine the congestion that would begin to take place. And so Jesus will come. And I want you to again remember, in one week, Jesus will be dead. As a matter of fact, from one week to the day, Jesus will be resurrected from the dead and be making a journey on the outside of Jerusalem as he makes his way on the road to Emmaus. 
So he comes to the top of the, the Mount of Olives. He sends two of his disciples. We're not told which two, but I highly suspect that one of them was Peter because of the details that are given in this passage. It says in verse 2, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you've entered into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Mark doesn't tell us if it's a colt of an elephant or a colt of a, of a camel or a horse. But we know that it's a donkey. And he says, loose it and bring it. How does Jesus know this? Is it because he's omniscient? Is it because he has perfect knowledge? Is it because he has complete authority? Is it because of the many journeys that he had taken to Jerusalem earlier? He had made an arrangement with the guy who owned the cult. And some people will say, see, Jesus is a fraud. He's a person who tried to orchestrate the fulfillment of of messianic prophecies to make it look like he's the Messiah. Well, you might make that claim except for some troubling problems. The Old Testament says that he will be born in Bethlehem. How can you determine your own birth and your and your uh, paternity and maternity? Jesus would be born of Abraham and Judah and David. That's going to be kind of difficult to pull off. But yes, there's a cult. And I'm going to suggest to you that he has perfect knowledge, he has complete authority, and however else we we determine this is happening, Jesus is doing it because this is exactly what needs to be done in order to fulfill prophecy. Because this date, this specific date, was spoken of hundreds of years in advance. And in verse 3 it says, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. This isn't the liberal Jesus of modernity. This isn't the squishy, wishy-washy Jesus of post-modernity. This is the Jesus who's the king of heaven, the king of history. This is the Jesus who occupies time and space and understands all things and knows all things. And what an interesting statement. If anyone says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. Now, we want to pause for just a moment and ask a theological question. Does the self-existent, self-sufficient God who created the heavens and the earth have need of anything? Yeah, the answer is no. The self-existent God who created all things, who knows all things, who occupies eternity, doesn't need anything But yet Jesus needs this cult to fulfill the prophecy on Palm Sunday. And so it's okay for us to ask the question, well, why? How are we to think even in terms when the when the text says something like the Lord has need of it? How interesting that Jesus loves to give those who love him a chance to demonstrate that love, to show that service. To participate in this dramatic thing that we call the life of faith and the life of love and a life of discipleship along the way. What if God has chosen to need us? What if God needs you in some way? What if God has chosen you and needs you in order to glorify himself? 
You know, when I was at Ground Zero with uh, Franklin Graham and Skip Heitzig, <laughs> I met up with a guy named Max Lucado. Some of you know him. He's written several books. And he desperately wanted to go to Ground Zero. And so we probably did the wrong thing and we smuggled him in our car down to uh, Ground Zero because we all had credentials. But he's written several books, and there's one chapter in particular that reminded me of this particular passage. He wrote a chapter in one of his books entitled, The Guy with the Donkey. And in that chapter, he writes, and he's from the South, he writes, When we all get home, I know what I want to do. There's someone I want to get to know. You go ahead and swap stories with Mary or talk doctrine with Paul. I'll I'll catch up with you soon. But first, I want to talk to the guy with the donkey. I don't know his name and I don't know what he looks like. I only know one thing. What he gave. He gave a donkey to Jesus on the Sunday morning that he entered Jerusalem. Go to the town you can see there. He wrote... When you enter it, you will quickly find a donkey tied there with a colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you why you are taking the donkey, say that the master needs him and he'll send it once. When we all get to heaven, I want to visit this fellow. I have several questions for him. How did you know? How did you know it was Jesus who needed the donkey? Did you have a vision? Did you get a telegram? He didn't write, did you get an email? Because I think he wrote it before the invention of email. Did an angel appear in your bowl of lentil? Was it hard to give? Was it difficult to give something to Jesus for him to use? I want to ask that question because sometimes it's hard for me. Sometimes I like to keep my animals to myself. Sometimes when God wants something, I act like I pretend he doesn't really need it. How did it feel? How did it feel to look and see Jesus on the back of the donkey that lived in your barn? Were you proud? Were you surprised? Were you annoyed? Did you know? Did you have any idea that your generosity would be used for such a noble purpose? Did it ever occur to you that God was going to ride your donkey? Were you aware that all four gospel writers would tell your story? Did it ever cross your mind that a couple of millennium later, a curious preacher in South Texas would be pondering your plight late at night? I like that. That's exactly what preachers do sometimes. They stay up late on Saturday wondering what they're going to do with the text. Did you ever feel like you might have missed your chance? Did you ever feel like perhaps the master was speaking to you? And I need you to understand something. That when the Bible speaks of Jesus speaking and and talking and communicating, is it possible that he might use the Bible? Is it possible that he might use a preacher? Is it possible that he might use a friend, a mom, a dad, a grandma, or a grandpa? What exactly does God need from you? Does he need to have fellowship with you? Does he need to forgive you? Does he 
need your heart in order to set in motion a chain of events that are going to unfold the future right before your eyes. Guys are going to meet girls and they're going to have babies and families and they're going to be projected into the future. Does God need you to be faithful to him? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Or this is it. This might come as a shock to you. This, you, you might be thinking, oh no, oh no, this is the part where the preacher asks me to do something or give something. And you'd be right. But I'm not asking you to give me anything. I don't want anything from you. But I am going to ask you to make everything available to Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that you do something that you may or may not do on a frequent basis, but that you examine your heart and you examine your circumstances and you examine your life and you examine your present and you examine your future and you ask and answer this question that you literally say to Jesus, what is it that you need from me? Because during the worship service, we were singing Hosanna. And as we were singing Hosanna, you may have, unbeknownst to you, had no idea that you were shouting and crying out to God. Because the word itself means, save me. It means, rescue me. And it means to save you from your sin, or save you from yourself, or save you from whatever circumstances. And you might be thinking, well, I didn't know I was saying that, and I I take it back. Well, maybe that's true. But maybe it's time to ask, what do you need from me? My heart, my life, my future. In Proverbs 11:24 it says, one man gives freely yet gains ever more, another withholds unduly and he comes to poverty. If ever there was a time in the life of Christians and Christianity, Our motto ought to be surrender when the Lord has need. Because when you least expect it, Jesus might call upon you and ask you to give something that you never, ever thought that he might require from you. Something stubborn, something hideous, something unbroken, like a donkey. Matthew Henry points to the fact that Jesus went upon the water in a borrowed boat. Jesus ate the Passover in a borrowed room. Jesus will be buried in a borrowed tomb. And on this day, he will ride upon a borrowed colt. Look at verse 4. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. It may not mean a whole lot to you, but that expression outside on the street translates just one single Greek noun, amphodon. And you may not even know that, but you kind of do know what that word means. If you've ever heard the word amphitheater, you know it means something that is in a circle. The noun amphi means both sides and hodos means the way or the road. So literally it meant a road around 
anything, but it can also mean a road around everything. One Bible uh, scholar, Alfred Plummer, says it originally meant a road around some building, and then it seems to have been used on a public road or a public street. And so Jesus knows exactly where to send them, and he knows exactly where to find exactly what he needs. And it says in verse 5, but some of those who stood there said to them, hey, what are you doing loosing the colt? And in verse 6, they spoke to him just as Jesus had commanded. So they said, let him go. Jesus had sent the two disciples to obtain the unridden cold. But here's the point. Jesus has carefully ordered everything. How again did this guy know that the master needed his cold? Again, we're not given full information other than the day's been selected. From eternity past as the day of fulfillment, Zechariah's prophecy, chapter nine, verse nine. But there's also a prophecy that's found in Daniel, chapter nine In Daniel, chapter nine. There is this amazing statement that's made in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, that's the Jews, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, verse 24. Five, and to anoint the most holy and therefore and understand that go from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty two weeks. The street shall begin built and the wall and even in troublesome times. You may not know this, but a week is a seven. And the 62 weeks is 62 times 7, and it's 62 sevens. As a matter of fact, these are 490 prophetic years that are 360 days long. Many years ago, a man did calculations. There was 42 months, 1,260 days. So he times it from the beginning of the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which was 445 B.C. At the time, after the 62 weeks, follow seven weeks. That is, after that, 69 weeks. He did the calculations and he found out it was something like 140,000 plus days. You fast forward it into the future and it's this day to the day. Zechariah prophesied it. Daniel prophesied it. Jesus is going to present himself as the Messiah on this particular day. And he has orchestrated that everything is going to be done according to his plan and his purpose. He has orchestrated the time of the entry. He has orchestrated the mode of transportation hundreds of years in advance. And God knew. Not just thousands of years in advance. But before time began, he knew about you and he knew about your life and he knew about your circumstances and he knew about your need and he knew exactly what you were going to need and he knew exactly when you were going to need it. Jesus sent the two disciples to obtain the unridden cold and he's carefully ordered everything, the time, the entry, 
And why never ridden? Because in Jewish culture, an animal devoted to a sacred task was one that must not engage in ordinary work. It was dedicated. That means set aside. The miracle isn't just that he has the donkey, but the miracle is that he's going to be able to ride a donkey. So those of you who are familiar with horses and those of you who are familiar with donkeys, how easy is it to ride an unbroken colt? It's not possible. So how is it that an unbroken colt allows its creator on its back? How is it possible that an unbroken human being allows a creator to be used comes to you in your wickedness and your sin and your rebellion and disobedience and all of a sudden shows up and says, I think I want to have something to do with you. That is a hallelujah. That's the perfect point even to say it. God shows up and is willing to be used to allow you to be... To forward the kingdom. You know, there's this wonderful poem called The Donkey by G.K. Chesterton. And, and it's, a, it's a poem about honor. And G.K. Chesterton, of course, is very famous. He wrote, When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorns, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings. The devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will. Starved, scourged, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secrets still. Fools. For I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet, there was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. What? Jesus would use a donkey? Jesus would use me? Unbroken? Untamed? Jesus comes purposefully and Jesus comes peacefully. How unlike the rulers and monarchs and leaders of this earth. He comes. And for a split second. In the mystery of a miracle. The cult knows him. Look what it says in verse seven. Then they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Unbroken, It doesn't balk or react to bear the creator on its back. It says in verse 8, And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In John's gospel, we're told that they took palm branches. They ran out to meet him. The palm branches, by the way, in that culture and society, represented the nationalistic desires to be delivered. 150 years earlier, Simon Maccabeus had delivered the city from the... Incredible tyranny of Antiochus Epiphanes who had polluted the temple and they celebrated with palm branches and music and singing and shouts of joy. And that's exactly what took place here in all of the previous times of Jesus's ministry. 
He refused to be recognized as the king. But this is the one, the only time that he allows that recognition to take place. And for a brief moment, for a brief moment, he's recognized as king. Look at verse 9. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna. Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. I've already told you what that means. Hosanna means save. We pray. They have met, may have meant save us from the Roman oppressors. Save us from Pilate. Save us from Rome. Save us from social and political and cultural incarceration. Save us. Save us so that we're free to be a, a free people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a direct quote of Psalm 118, verse 26. It was used in relation to Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And when you use the term, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's another way of saying, blessed is he who comes by the power and the authority under the auspices of the King of Heaven. And that's what you were praying and singing. Save me. Save me. From what? From sin? From death? From misery? From poverty? Save me from a bad marriage. Save me from a job. Give me a better job. It's okay for you to ask for and want any of those things and all of those things. It's okay that you have needs and it's okay that you cry out to God for those needs. But in this particular instance and under under those particular circumstances, they were shouting in fulfillment of the prophecies that were given. This is known as an antiphonal procession. And you may not know what an antiphonal procession is, but some scholars suggest that it probably went something like this. There was a group in front of Jesus and there was a group in back of Jesus. The first group leading the way would have shouted, Hosanna. The second group would have shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then the first group would have responded with, Hosanna in the highest. And it would have continued back and forth as he makes his way through the procession towards the city. And in verse 10, look what it says. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Remember what the expectation is. The expectation is the promise that David's kingdom would be restored and David's son would sit on David's throne. They want a king. And they want freedom. And they want deliverance. But they have no idea. That Jesus is coming as peace, in peace, the king of peace, in order to provide peace. John Hess Yoder, who is a missionary, writes, 
While serving as a missionary in Laos, I discovered an illustration of the kingdom of God. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the king of Laos and the king of Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation in the border areas. Those who ate short grain rice built their house on stilts and decorated them with Indian-style serpents, and they were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice built their houses on the ground and decorated them with Chinese style dragons and they were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined his or her nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. This is important for you and I. That's the way it is for us. We live in the world, but as a part of God's kingdom, we live according to standards and values that reflect who our king really is. Who is your king? And what are your values? And how are they reflected in the very real world in which you live? The donkey Jesus rides speaks of his person and position. It's one of humility and peace. Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, repeats his messianic character. And again, this is the moment. This is the moment prophesied by Zechariah. This is the moment that was prophesied by Daniel, the prophet. Look at him. He's not riding a stallion, which is a war animal. He doesn't come with fearful pomp and power. He sits on a donkey. This is no war animal. It's ready to bear the burden. It's ready to work. It's ready to help. And therefore, he shows himself not as a king who comes to terrify you or drive you away or oppress you but to help you and carry your burden and he will carry it upon himself. And so he invites you to really mean what you say when you say, Hosanna. Save me. Save me from my sins. Save me from myself. Save me from my past. Save me from my ignorance. Save me from my wickedness. Save me from every wicked and evil and horrible thing that I've done. And look at verse 11, it says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Once in Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes to the temple. But not all the way into the temple, rather into the courtyard. He may have gone as far as the courtyard of the Gentiles, but do you understand when it says he goes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and he looks around, he gives it the once over. This is the deliberation. This is assessing his position. Barclay writes this like a commander summing up the strength of the opposition and his own resources preparatory to a decisive battle like a soldier. He's going out and he's evaluating what he's up against. 
Lane adds, quote, in recording this visit to the temple, Mark has no intention of depicting Jesus as a pilgrim who's come to Jerusalem for the first time and has a natural desire to see all things. The point is rather that Jesus is the Lord of the temple and he's inspecting its premises to determine whether or not the purposes of God are being fulfilled in that temple. And so Jesus shows up. And he checks me out and he checks you out. And he's wondering whether or not the temple has been dedicated to what it's supposed to be dedicated to. Even though the temple was supposed to be dedicated to God, Jesus is somewhat uncomfortable. Why? Could it be that the religious leaders and the priests haven't given Jesus his rightful place? temple belonged to God and yet God's Messiah isn't really welcome there Jesus goes back and he retires to Bethany with the twelve now I want you to think about this the journey back to Bethany is about two miles it's late in the evening and he will walk back to Bethany who lives in Bethany Mary Martha Lazarus The twelve are still with him. They're still with him. They don't understand exactly what's going on. And they don't understand that this week is going to be the most powerful, packed week of the ministry. So where will Jesus get the strength and the resolve to go forward? He's going to go to a place where he can meditate. He's going to go to a place where he can understand and experience the presence of God. He's going to go to a place where he can enjoy the company of fellowship and friends. And the twelve are still with him. They understand that something's wrong. They understand that there's a real danger. They understand that there's a burning hatred and a deep animosity among the religious leaders. But even though they understand those things, they don't understand everything. He goes back to Bethany. In his book, The Words and Works of Jesus, Dwight Pentecost makes this summary of the of the passage. He says, Messiah, as the Prince of Peace, came on the appointed day to bring peace to the nation. This then was the day of Christ's official presentation as Messiah of Israel. Christ was identified before the nation as Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated as Messiah at his temptation. His glory as Messiah was revealed at the transfiguration. But on this day, the date of his triumphal entry, Christ made an official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. And now we begin to understand the significance of the Lord's statement in Luke 19.42. Even you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Can you imagine if the nation would have begun to understood that Jesus is God's promise for deliverance? You know, that day appears once in a great while to us. There's a day that Jesus shows up and presents himself as Lord and Savior. Do you realize that there's going to come a time when Jesus will appear again? 
Not just to a nation that's deeply divided. That's filled with hearts that are deeply divided. But to a world that's deeply divided. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Do you know why his robe's dipped in blood? That's the splatter of his enemies. His robe started off white. But because he is in a battlefield, the battlefield is quenched with blood and it drips from his garment. And it says, and his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in white linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he sh- that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on a on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords that's the triumphal entry that's one that is unmistakable that is one that cannot go anything other than recognized Many of you are are familiar with the battle hymn of the Republic. What you may not be familiar with is the story behind the song. Kenneth Osbeck has written a book entitled (laughs) The Stories Behind the Hymns. He tells the story this way. Quote, To have implicit trust in God's faithfulness and care and protection is never easy, particularly in times of danger and strife. Yet even in the midst of the terrible civil war between the North and the South, a remarkable woman named Julia Ward Howe proclaimed her confidence in God's triumphant power. Deeply anguished at the growing conflict between the two sections of the country, Mrs. Howe watched troops marching off to war singing John Brown's Body, a song about a man who had been hanged in his efforts to free the slaves. Julia felt that the catchy camp meeting tune should have better words, and in a desire to phrase her own feelings about the dreadful events of the time, she scrawled the verses almost without looking at the paper. The national hymn first appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, In 1862, as a battle song for the Republic, before long, the entire nation became inspired by her text and united in singing the new words with an old tune. Mrs. Howe's hymn had been acclaimed through the years as one of the finest patriotic songs. At one time, it was sung as a solo at a rally, which also featured the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. After hearing the song, the audience exploded in applause and the president with tears in his eyes cried out, sing it again. And it was sung again. And after more than a hundred years, Americans still join proclaiming glory 
Hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He had loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. With a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. It was written at a time when not only our nation was deeply divided, but hearts were deeply divided. And they needed some way to communicate hope for the future. And they did it by reminding what you already know. Jesus came as the king of peace to provide a mechanism so that you could be forgiven. And Jesus will come again as the king of righteousness so that every wrong will be made right in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray That we could, with a very clear conscience, ask the question, what do you need from me? What do you need from me as a husband? What do you need from me as a wife? What do you need from me as a a grandfather, grandmother, as an employer? What do you need from me as a student? What do you need from me? Lord, how do you want to use me to glorify yourself? And expand your kingdom. Lord. What is it. That you need from me. So that the prophecies could be fulfilled. And so that the time of your coming. Would be ever sooner. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.